0: To To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation, so we can grow in our relationship with God.
1: At this time, um, we actually have three visitors uh huh. <laughs> like, where's Pastor Vinny? I know something's gonna happen today. <laughs> you can tell in my voice. We have three visitors that have flown in from the Near East. Thankfully, their flights didn't get canceled. So, uh, one after the other, we're gonna start with uh, a gentleman from modern-day Bethlehem, and we will go into that. So, enjoy the service.
2: Good morning. Yes, so I I, I didn't give uh, I didn't give a name when they were asking about today, but I am a gentleman. Some may dispute that. From Bethlehem, in 2023, and it's Christmas Eve, 2023. But it's really for me unlike any other Christmas Eve that I've experienced. You see. This is normally the busiest time of year in Bethlehem. I mean, tourists from all over the world, people visiting from all over, wanting to experience that, uh, that the time, the place, uh, the specifics of where Jesus was born. And they were, they're celebrating, there's joy and there's gladness and there's rejoicing and Really, our economy is dependent on this time of year. And, uh, but we've seen a change this year. Not this year. You see, most of the shops are closed. If they could show the image of what the shops look like in Bethlehem at this time of year. The hotels are empty. My friend runs a local hotel in this city, and uh, he was booked solid for Christmas before October 7th, and now no one's coming to visit. The House of Bread, which is the ancient translation of the, the town of Bethlehem, it means the House of Bread, is this year a house of burden. You see, our country is at war. Bethlehem is located in the West Bank of Israel, about five miles from Jerusalem. And, you know, the residents of Israel and Bethlehem and all the surrounding cities, they've faced wars and conflicts and trials for centuries. But this is the first one that I'm experiencing in my life. I've raised my family here. Uh, We own a local shop. We sell these beautiful olive wood artifacts that maybe some of you have in your homes. They especially are very popular around this time of year. But there's no business, so not this year. The Bible, though, tells us about this city. So as I contemplate the troubles that my city is undergoing this year, I also look back with pride and joy and some nostalgia and some sorrow at what our city was at one time. The Old Testament tells us in Genesis 35, verse 19, it says, So Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrathah, that is, Bethlehem. Rachel was Jacob's wife. She died giving birth to a son, and Jacob buried her in a grave in Bethlehem. Today, today, that spot where her grave was is a monument that people come and visit from time to time. And uh, Maybe there's an image of that, uh, Rachel's grave, for you to look at, but not this year. Not this year. I remember reading about Ruth in the Bible. She traveled to Bethlehem with her mother-in-law and eventually met a man from our city named Boaz. And Ruth 2 kind of recounts this story. It says in verse 4 through 7, Now behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered him, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his servant who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? So the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered and said, It is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. And she said, please let me glean and gather after the reapers among the sheaves. So she came and has continued from morning until now, though she rested a little in the house. You remember the story, Boaz courted and eventually married Ruth. And they raised a family in Bethlehem. One of their sons, Obed, was actually the grandfather of King David. When David was appointed king, Bethlehem was sort of a different status. Uh, it was a, at that time a humble agricultural town. But then when David became king, it became a, more of a bustling city with uh, merchants and, and, uh, and other businesses. And it, remember it uh, was known as the city of David the house of bread, the city of David, Bethlehem. Imagine how David felt, though, being the least of his family in the smallest of towns and then becoming king of Israel. It gives us hope that though we may be insignificant in the world's eyes, God still sees us as something of value. Amen? The Bible tells us that King David was known as a man after God's own heart. And so he was. I frequently read through the book of Psalms where David's heart is is poured out in those pages. He expresses the sorrow, the joy, the doubt, everything that we experience as we read through the book of Psalms. We get to see and understand what he physically, emotionally, and spiritually was going through during his life. But by the time of the first century, Bethlehem was again kind of reduced to a humble village. But biblically, we know how significant Bethlehem is because it was the place that God chose to have his son Jesus be born. Luke 2 tells us in verses 1 through 4, and it came to pass in those days that a decree went out the remarkable plan that God had for my little town of Bethlehem way back several hundred years before Jesus was born. In Micah 5.2 we read, But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from old, from everlasting. I love that scripture. How Micah, as as he was inspired by the Holy Spirit to write these words, is so specific. You know, there were two Bethlehems, actually, at that time. Micah distinguishes between this Bethlehem, Ephrathah, and the other Bethlehem, which is located farther away from Jerusalem. I love how the details in the Bible just provide credibility to its divine origin. I mean, consider the fact that Micah was written several hundreds of years before Jesus was born. And notice how Micah calls this Bethlehem little. You know, it's sort of insignificant. That, I don't take that as an insult to my small town. Many of you probably come from small towns that might be Considered insignificant in the grand scheme of things, but to you, they're home, and that's important. You know, we became Christians many years ago, and you know, when we moved back to Bethlehem, it was sort of uh, just we became fuller because we see all that goes on in this in this city. I love the fact that our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, came from such humble beginnings, from a small town. It encourages me, as it should you, to relate to him in a more intimate and personal way. And isn't that the way it should be with our God? Shouldn't it be an intimate, personal, personal relationship? Bethlehem Ephrathah, two names, two meanings, Bethlehem means the house of bread. And when we think of that, we we can relate that to Jesus Christ. John 6.35 tells us, And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. Jesus came to nourish us spiritually. So there's no more fitting a place than the house of bread for the bread of life to be born. Ephratha means fruitfulness. And in John, Jesus says, if you abide in me and my words abide in, abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. Our, the evidence of a relationship with Jesus Christ is fruit. Fruit is fruit glorifying to God and loving others. That's what he desires from us. Jesus came that we may have a relationship with him and remain close to him so that we could be fruitful in this world. And Micah goes on in verse 5 of chapter 5 and tells us about this one who was to be born. And that first part of that verse says, and this one shall be peace. This one shall be peace. Not this year in Bethlehem. There is no peace. As we look out at the world, we see a lack of peace. We see a void. There is no peace. There's wars. There's battles. There's division and discord. We see hate and animosity between people. If Jesus was peace as the prophet Micah wrote what has happened to our world what has happened you know if you put up the image of the church this is the church of the nativity in Bethlehem again a very popular tourist spot built way back in 300 A.D. It was destroyed once completely in about 529 A.D., but then over the years rebuilt and it has withstood many battles, many wars. But even to this day, the, there's a dispute over the rightful ownership and possession of this church, the church that's there to commemorate the birth of Jesus. So we don't see the peace. We don't see the peace that was promised. Isaiah 9.6 tells us, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Prince of Peace. I pray for peace. We should all pray for peace. I pray for the one who is peace to be exalted in our world and then the world will truly see peace because it is is only through the prince of peace that this world will ever experience that. But more than that, more than that, I pray that those who don't know Jesus will come to that place of knowing him that they may have peace with God. Because before I was saved, I was at enmity with God, the Bible says. I was his enemy. I was going against God. And then he was revealed to me and I realized my need for that relationship. And so now I have that peace, the peace with God which brings the peace of God although our rejoicing this year in Bethlehem may be silent but the silent delight of our hearts that are stirring with the understanding and knowledge of who Jesus really is it's not the same as it has been in the past but I'd like to give you another perspective and the next speaker that's going to come up is going to give us a perspective from 2,000 years ago about what Bethlehem was like. And maybe that will put another uh, layer on the story for you. But Bethlehem.
3: This is a big stable. My goodness. It even smells like a stable in here. Did you hear? You didn't hear that? You know what I heard? Sheep. That's very familiar. Very familiar. It's weird being back on this planet. My brother tended sheep. He went to Germany. He was a German shepherd, very protective. I come from a long, long line of shepherds. But we'll get to that in a few minutes. We lived out in the fields. We were keeping watch over our flock one night. Then all of a sudden a bright light came and an angel of the Lord stood before us. And the glory of the Lord shone all around us. And we were afraid. (laughs) Greatly afraid. I was shaking in my sandals. Then the angel said, Don't be afraid. For tonight, I bring you great news of great joy for you and for all the people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes. Lying in a manger. A Savior? A baby? Hmm. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts, more angels praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill towards men and women and teenagers. Single digit people. So it was when the angels had gone away from us into heaven that we looked at one another and we said, Let's go to Bethlehem and check this out. Let's see if what the angel said is true. And we ran and we came and found Mary and Joseph and the baby. Lying in a manger. Now, when we had seen him, we made widely known the saying which was told us concerning that child. We couldn't wait to tell people. And all those who heard it marveled. Probably in today's society, they went nuts, they went bonkers. Then we returned to our fields, right outside of Bethlehem, glorifying and praising God for all the things that we had heard and that we saw, just as the angels told us. It happened. I was only 10 years old when this happened. I watched this baby grow up. He was a carpenter. In his developing years, I was out in the wilderness when John was baptizing people, and I heard him say, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He was baptizing in the Jordan River when Jesus came up over the hill, and I said, Lamb of God, being a Levitical shepherd, I knew what lambs were used for. We raised the lambs that were sacrificed in the temple to cover people's sins. And this Jesus, who I saw born in that stable, was being referred to as a lamb. And that he would take away the sins of the world. Only God could do that. I would find out in a few years, when Jesus was executed on a cross, He was no mere man. He was the God man. He resurrected three days later and over 500 people saw him. You know, the image of shepherds are throughout the Bible and probably because shepherds have a very caring and sensitive heart. Most of the major characters in the Bible were shepherds. I don't know if you know that. Adam, he had to care for animals. Abel brought an offering of blood, the firstborn of his flock, to be sacrificed. And it was respected by the Lord. Here with Abel, one lamb for one man. Later, at the Passover, it will be one lamb for a family. Sometimes up to ten people. Then at Yom Kippur or the Day of Atonement, it was one lamb for the nation. But finally, with Jesus, there was one lamb who took away the sins of the whole world. How awesome! How great is that? Noah cared for the animals in the ark. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were shepherds. Two of the greatest leaders in the Old Testament were shepherds. Moses and King David. We were taught growing up the story of Abraham. And him going to sacrifice his son Isaac. Remember that story? In Genesis 22.7 it says, But Isaac spoke to Abraham his father and said, My father... And he said, here I am, my son. Then he said, look, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, my son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. So the two of them went together You know, a a lamb is a baby sheep or a goat. Did you know that? In the Old Testament writings, 2 Samuel 5, 2, it says, referring to David, King David, Also in time past, when Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel out and brought them in. And the Lord said to you, You shall shepherd my people Israel and be ruler over them. I'm sure you know Psalm 23, a psalm of David. The Lord is my shepherd. I remember growing up and my mom and dad teaching me Isaiah 53.7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shearers, silent. So he opened not his mouth. I think I just heard a bleeding of a sheep somewhere. (laughs) In Matthew, and while he was being accused by the chief priests and the elders, he answered nothing. Then Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he answered him, not one word, so that the governor marveled greatly that is silence. Towards the end of the Old Testament, in the book of Micah, it says, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. That, that connection between the Lamb and the shepherds throughout history in the Old Testament. And Jesus even said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. I am the good shepherd, Jesus said, and I know my sheep and am known by my own. And I love this one. Jesus said, another sheep I have which are not of this fold. Them also I must bring and they will hear my voice and there will be one flock and one shepherd that's awesome jewish people gentile people one because of what jesus did as a cross at the cross he came as a little innocent pure baby and grew into our savior in hebrews it says now may the god of peace Who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead. That great shepherd of the sheep. Through the blood of the everlasting covenant. Never runs out. It's everlasting. In 1 Peter it says, For you were like sheep going astray. But have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Jesus used... So much of the shepherd and lamb language throughout his career here. In John 10, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And in closing, Revelation. The last book of the Bible. Chapter 7, verse 17 says, For the lamb who is in the midst of the throne, will shepherd them and lead them to living fountains of waters. And God will wipe every tear away from their eyes. Well, i got to get back up to heaven. I can't wait to be in the presence of my Lord where I can see Him face to face. I'll be seeing you. Later on, I hope to see all of you there. I know I'll see you guys. So have a Merry Christmas as we celebrate the birth, yes, of a baby, but more than a baby. The King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Great Shepherd of our souls. Amen. right here. I love his hair. His hair is awesome.
1: I don't know how anybody could fight with this stuff on. Move out of the way, sheep. I got these at Roman Vision Works. (laughs) Good morning, everyone. My name is Gladius Bioflavonoid Hystericus Globulus Fabuloso. I am the Centurion of the Jerusalem Regiment. I'm here to tell you about Yeshua, Jesus, from a purely Roman perspective. More than a thousand years B.C., there was a Hebrew scripture, prophecy, Genesis 49.10, that it said, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people And that's an interesting scripture because before Roman was anything, before it even existed, there was something that took place that God said, my Messiah would come when there would be a change in the political arrangement. You see, the Jewish people were conquered by Babylon and Medo-Persia, Greek and Romans, but they always were allowed to have their scepter to adjudicate capital cases. It wasn't until Jesus came that all of that changed. There was a changing of the guard from Herod Archelaus to Capanius and five down Pontius Pilate. So it was an amazing thing how this scripture was fulfilled in the Roman Empire. This became a headache to Rome because these followers of Christos refused to worship our pantheon of gods and our emperors. Even some of my fellow soldiers got caught up in believing in Jesus. In your book of Matthew, chapter eight, he recalls a situation where one of my peers, the centurion, said Lord, I am not worthy to come under for you to come under my roof, but only speak the word, and my servant shall be healed. He said this to Jesus. For I also am a man under authority, having soldiers under me, and I say to this one, go, and to another one come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. And when Jesus heard it, he marveled and said to those who followed, Surely I haven't found such faith even in all of Israel. So Jesus honored the centurion's request and even healed the servant remotely. That was the start of the soldiers following him. I have a first hand account because I was in the praetorium when Jesus was speaking to the governor, Pontius Pilate, and I felt a role reversal, usually when a prisoner would be in front of the governor. The prisoner would, I'd have to stop them from getting down on the ground and kissing the governor's feet and begging and sobbing for their lives. And the governor was always in control. But in this situation, it was very interesting because I felt that Jesus was in control, but the governor seemed unnerved, very strange. Actually, in your John 19, it states, Therefore, when Pilate heard the sayings of Jesus, he was more afraid. And he went into the praetorium and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Are you not speaking to me? Do you not know that I have the power to crucify you and the power to release you? Jesus answered, You could have no power at all against me unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, the one who has delivered me to you has the greater sin. And we all knew Pilate's wife, what a nice lady. She actually sent to Pilate and said, Have nothing to do with this just man. I have suffered many th- things in a dream. Well, y- you know, you would almost think that Jesus wanted to be crucified. that he, but, but again, according to the prophecies, he was supposed to be crucified according to Leviticus 17 all the way in the Old Testament, that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. Continuing on. So Jesus is finally crucified, and we thought, ah, finally, another fledgling little belief will be finally over. However, in your Matthew 27... It says, Behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth quaked, and the rocks were split, and the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had died were raised. And coming out of the graves after the Lord's resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. So when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they feared greatly, saying, Truly, this was the Son of God. So even in... The death of Christus, I was losing men to this faith. Much to our chagrin, the crucifixion was not the end, but it was only the beginning. I had some men under me guarding the tomb of Jesus. Now, everybody wanted that post. That was an outside job, a quasi gig that guys would fight for to sign up for. It was easy. All you have to do is hang out there, eat, roll dice, have, a, have fun, and uh, we'll get paid for it. However, all the men fled. Oh boy, were they in trouble. They said they had seen an angel. They were terrified. It was it was surreal. Then I had to round up almost half of my legion to search for the body of Christ because we had a real problem on our hands. The reports of the risen Christ was spreading like wildfire all over Rome and the governor, the emperor, and the religious leaders were furious. My men were on overtime trying to find the body of Christos. We never did find the body no matter how many people were threatened or imprisoned. Ironically, before us, who was the Greeks, of course inferior to us Romans, but they developed the Koine language and that language spread all throughout the world, all the way to India, to the far reaches of the globe. And then we as Romans built Roman roads. We actually developed a postal system and we kept the Koine language. So this Christos arrived perfect in perfect timing historically because this gospel was spread by foot, by mail, and everyone spoke the Koine Greek. Most people were bi and trilingual. So the gospel spread like wildfire. We could not contain it. We Romans crushed the Spartacus rebellion some years ago. We destroyed Jerusalem some years later. We annihilated the followers of Bar Kokhba in the second century. But no matter how much we tried, we could not destroy this fledgling faith that you call Christianity. We employed tactics that worked every time a Messiah rose up. We killed them and the followers, and they would dissipate. No temples to them. 2,000 years later, I don't see any in America. But churches and gatherings of Christians all over the world the more we tried to eradicate this Jesus movement, it seemed to grow. So then our leaders became vindictive because the followers of Christ would not worship our pantheon or our emperors. So they resorted, resorted to burning them alive, throwing them into the Colosseums, but no, to no avail. Even Tertullian said that the blood of the martyrs was the seed of the church. Rome eventually gave up trying to destroy Christianity. And a few centuries later actually accepted it with the Edict of Milan in 313 AD. They legalized it. This Jesus made more of an impact on Rome than any historical figure or any of the Greco-Roman pantheon. Well, I guess I could explain it like this from everything that I've seen. It was prophesied that God the Son would come to the earth. It was prophesied that He would come through humble beginnings, that He would grow in stature and maturity, that He would teach. But the most important thing that this Christos said is that, I came to die. I came to give life. And the only way He could give life was to shed His blood for the remission of sins. On the third day, He rose again. There's no doubt about that in fulfillment of the Scriptures. And for 40 days after His resurrection, He went all throughout the area, Strengthening the foundation, the spiritual foundation of his believers. And thus spreading Christianity through the world to date to two millennia. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. For me, I think about this and I believe, I believe. He took Rome by storm converting so many people, including those in the areas of government. I've checked the facts. I believe these things to be true. What about you?
0: You've been listening to To Every Generation from Calvary Chapel Cross. We meet for Bible study Wednesdays at 7 p.m. And Sunday service begins at 10.30 a.m. On Sundays, we have children's church for all ages, in addition to infant and nursery care. You can find out more about the ministry here at Calvary Chapel Crossfields by going to www.cccrossfields.org, where you can also watch or listen to previous messages. If you have any questions or have a prayer request, please email us at contact at cccrossfields.org. Thanks for listening, and may God bless.